0: All right, well, go ahead and open your Bible to 2 Peter if you haven't already done so. And big news this week, Elon Musk is buying Twitter. Who's happy about that? Raise your hand. All right, somebody got a clap right here. Twitter, Musk got a clap. I like it. I'm a fan. Um, You know, in response to those that news, uh, there was an article called Elon H. Christ. Have you seen that? Anybody seen that? So this is an article Obviously, it's blasphemous from a Christian point of view, but the article is trying to say, look at Elon Musk. He's successful with whatever he touches. He he can give us the electric car. He can give us solar city and everything else that he touches. Ultimately, he wants to make sure that we populate Mars. If you read his autobiography, that's, or biography rather, that's what it's all about. But this week, this is the big news because he's now gonna be the defender of free speech. Aren't we happy? Elon H. Christ. That's all I want to say about that because it takes me to this connection. There are people in history, many people in history over the last couple thousand years who have claimed to be Christ. In fact, if you do a simple search online in the last hundred years or so, there's been 40 different individuals who have claimed to be Christ. Now we knew that that would happen, right? Jesus is the one who said people will come claiming to be the Messiah in the future. That'll be a part of human history. And I don't want to go through all those individuals, but many of them are a part of the Christendom and the movement that is oftentimes called the Health and Prosperity Movement. I mean, if you heard of that movement, Health, Wealth, Prosperity Movement. Okay, many of those individuals are in that. Not all, but many of them are. And so just to kind of give you an understanding of the global impact of those kind of churches and those kind of ministries, I want to give you some statistics. In the United States, there are over 30 churches that have attendance in excess of 15,000 people on a regular basis. So 30 churches in excess of 15,000 people attend those churches. And most of them are in the prosperity movement. You probably have heard of Joel Osteen, right? In Texas, his church claims 43,000 attendees. Stephen Furtick in Atlanta, he claims to have 22,000. There's a few others. T.D. Jakes is another famous one. We'll talk about him in just a minute. He claims 16,000 and then Creflo Dollar, 15,000. If you expand the survey outside the United States, you go into Africa. In Africa, there's a church in Nigeria that has 275,000 members, Living Faith Church in Nigeria. In Africa, there are over 20 churches in that, that have a nexus of 20,000 people each. So if you just kind of do the math, you're looking at about a million and a half people who are part of these few churches, 20 or 21 different churches, and it's a million and a half people who are part of this health, wealth, prosperity movement. In Asia, the three largest churches, one of them is Yoida, a full gospel church, 480,000 people are a part of this church. Calvary Temple Chapel, 225,000 people attend this church. Church, Bethany Church of God, 140,000 people. If you look at Asia as a whole, you have over 30 churches that have in excess of 20,000 people in each. So now you're looking at over 2 million people in Asia who are associating themselves with a health, wealth, prosperity, gospel kind of church. You go to South America. In South America, you have 15 churches, one five, that have at least 20,000 attendees in each. So as you do the math, people that have studied this, you're looking at over 3 million people who associate with these mega churches and the characteristic is that they believe in health, wealth, and prosperity. Now, many of you have probably read or heard about the various scandals that often come with these churches. Some of the common Themes related to these churches are healings, right? They believe that they can heal people. Some of them claim they can heal AIDS and cancer. Some have claimed that they can stop typhoons and earthquakes. Recently, because the COVID thing kind of messed up some of these individuals because you can't meet and you have to stay far apart and all that, uh, they've begun claiming that they can heal people by phone. So you can just call them in and they'll heal you through a phone call. The other common theme is corruption. In some is one of the churches that I mentioned earlier, the pastor spent 3 years in prison and was fined 5 million dollars because of he because he defrauded his own church of 9 million euros. And so his own church that he allegedly served and so he spent multiple years in prison. Others have been accused of having undue influence over politicians in their country and just controlling the political system. Others have been accused of being, um, uh, of of illegally buying weapons and becoming uh, trafficking weapons around the world. Multiple individuals in South Africa. They've been accused of massacres. I was reading about one story where an individual wanted land that was close to his mega mansion. And so he massacred a bunch of people in order to be able to get that land. Doesn't that remind you of Naboth's vineyard and Ahab and Jezebel from the Bible? That doesn't stop with Old Testament history. People are still doing those things today. And of course, some have even been accused of trafficking and things like that. Well, coming back home to the United States, the, or rather, the, the seven most influential individuals in the world and the seven riches are the following. Number seven is Creflo Dollar. And I want to show you some pictures so you have an idea of who we're talking about. Creflo Dollar founded the church called World Changers Church International. He has a music label. He has got a bunch of business ventures. And so he is worth $27 million. You go to number six, the sixth richest individual, and that's Chris Lome. And he is the founder of Love World Ministries. 40,000 people are part of his church. And he's worth $50 million. Benny Hinn is number five. We know him. And I was surprised to see that he's only number five. I thought he'd be a little bit... Uh, richer than that, he's worth 52 million. And of course, we know him through a lot of false claims about healings and resurrections. Number four is Enoch Ataboy. I don't know how else to say it, but I'm going to say Ataboy. Enoch Ataboy. Okay, he's actually known as Daddy Geo, so please call him Daddy Geo. And he is one of the most popular clergymen in the world. He's got the biggest church in Nigeria. And he's worth 55 million. David Oedipo, Oedipo, I think, he founded the church Living Faith Church, and it's also known as the Winner's Chapel. The Winner's Chapel, so not a very exclusive church, right? Winners only are welcomed here. He's got a couple universities, a couple, or four jets. uh, The wealthiest person in Africa, worth 150 million. TD Jakes, back home in America, TD Jakes. He's probably the most popular or famous or known pastor in America. Certainly one of the most listened to. His church is in Dallas, 30,000 members. He's worth 154 million. There's a huge controversy about him and Mark Driscoll a few years back. He doesn't believe in the Trinity and so kind of created some waves in evangelicalism. And finally, this is the richest pastor in the world. His name is Apollo, I'm just going to say it that way. I don't know if anybody can correct me, but this is the richest individual in the world. He is from the Philippines. He has um, six and a half million members at his church. Two million in the Philippines kind of frequent his church and then four and a half on the internet listen to him. He is currently building the biggest cathedral in the world, with inside seating of seventy-five thousand people, and his influence goes to all the continents in the world—from North, from Asia, America, Europe, South, um, and Central America, and Africa. Of course, he would have multiple jets, multiple estates around the world. He has his own TV network, his multiple radio stations, multiple newspapers. He's called the political kingmaker in the Philippines, worth 160 million people. He started his ministry pretty humbly. He was just a youth leader in the Pentecostal church movement. And um, after four years or so, five years, he was expelled from it, even as a young man, because of his unorthodox teaching. A year later, he was brought back into the fold and then he was expelled again because he was a little bit too arrogant uh, as he was interacting with other pastors. And at that point in 1985, he started his own denomination, his own church. He likes to call himself the owner of the universe. Um, You kind of see that in a sci-fi movie, right? Those kind of titles for people, but not in real life. And he's the one who recently said, I am the son of God. He claims to be the current final coming of the son of god he doesn't believe in the tribulation he doesn't believe in the rapture he doesn't believe in the new heaven and earth that's not happening because he is christ incarnate he's back the second coming is the new testament promise prophesies is fulfilled in him now he is also accused of many horrible crimes from trafficking young women to collecting bogus donations, to being a fraud as he give, connects to visas, work visas for people and student visas. And um, in November of this past year, he was indicted by the FBI in uh, Santa Ana, here in a court in Santa Ana, and then also in Washington DC for his crimes, not only in the Philippines, but specifically in America. And he would be the most famous pastor and the most the richest pastor in the world that's a small survey you can do a lot more research and you can find a lot more names and a lot more ministries that fall into this umbrella of people who claim to be Jesus people who claim to be the owner of the universe or the son of God and you begin to evaluate those claims against scripture and we have to do that and ask the question is that true is that real can this person actually be the owner of the universe? Is he the return of Jesus Christ? You see, Second Peter chapter 2 is about these kind of individuals. We're going to do the whole chapter. So get comfortable. It's going to be an interesting study, but also hopefully a sobering study that I hope will help you in the future, wherever God takes you for the rest of your life if he moves you from LA, if he moves you from this church, that you would be able to discern and evaluate the claims of the preachers in that church. And you'd be able to not fall for seductive teaching as millions and millions and millions of people are currently falling for those claims because they're seeking something that these individuals are promising. And we'll see a lot of that in the text, but they can't deliver. Just a quick summary for those who may not have been with us as we looked at the first chapter. Second Peter is all about living the godly life. That's the main point of the book of Second Peter. And Peter begins this letter in the first few verses by saying you have everything you need to live the godly life. God has given you the power that you need. And at the end of the first chapter, as you heard last week, that power is in the word of God. And Abner is the one who made it very clear that God has given us his word that is more reliable than our experience, than our explanations, and more reliable than everything else in life. Our experience, our explanations, and our everything in our lives. And so we start by Peter starts by saying we have all we need to live the godly life, and ultimately that power resides in the word of God. And so he finishes the very end of chapter 1 by speaking of prophecy that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And he juxtaposes that statement in the beginning of the next chapter by saying, there will come people who are going to pervert and twist that word of God. That's the link between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Well, we acknowledge those who are truly Christ's, acknowledge that the word of God is inspired, that is given to us supernaturally by God, It is preserved for us. It it has no errors. It is infallible and it is inerrant and inspired. And yet people will show up and begin to take that word and build their ministries and their life claim and their life wealth on perverting that truth. And so Peter begins in chapter two by saying false prophets, also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So because people will come and pervert the word of God, Peter warns us, warns the believers in his time and warns us as those who need to pay attention and to need to be careful what we listen to. But remember, the overall point is godliness. So as we look at this chapter, what we're going to see is that what characterizes the individual's who are false prophets, false teachers, who pervert the word of God are characterized by ungodliness. And so by application, I think the way this relates to us is that we need to examine our lives. And if there's evidence of living the ungodly life, ultimately the question we need to ask ourselves is, am I a genuine follower of Jesus Christ? Because we'll see here that they also claim to be believers. They also taught the Bible as if they were believers but their life betrays them. And Jesus spoke about that. By their fruit, you will know them. And so as we look at this chapter, don't just let this chapter be about Benny Hinn, about Creflo Dollar, about Apollo, or whoever else I mentioned, or any other potentially uh, false teacher that you know. No, let this chapter by application be a self-evaluation. Am I pursuing godliness? Maybe I'm not involved in trafficking, young ladies. I'm not involved in arms deals. I'm not involved in building mansions for myself all over the world. But are you pursuing godliness, as Peter calls us to? And so as we aim to understand this chapter, the warning against ungodliness can be understood in this way. First of all, there's the prediction about the ungodly. And that's in verses one through three that I just read. There's the prediction about ungodliness. If you look at... Some of the Old Testament passages, we understand, and they'll be on the screen, you understand that false prophets and false teachers existed in the Old Testament. In Micah chapter 3, verse 5, this is what we read. That says, The Lord concerning the prophets who led my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Therefore, it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will become dark over them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. So there'll be people and there were people in Israel who led the people astray, God's people, and God said, this is the judgment that they will experience. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 28, that's also on the screen for us. Jeremiah 28 and in verse 15, he says, then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, listen, now Hananiah the Lord has not sent you and you have made this people trust in a lie therefore thus says the Lord behold I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth the ye- this year you are gonna die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord so Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month in the next chapter in verse 21 it says thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel concerning Ahab the son of Kaliah and concerning Zedekiah the son of Maasa." who are prophesying to you falsely in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will slay them before your eyes. And in verse 32 of the same chapter, therefore thus says the Lord, behold, I'm about to punish Shemaiah the Nihalamite and his descendants. He will not have anyone living among this people and he will not see the good that I'm about to do to my people, declares the Lord, because he has preached rebellion against the Lord. If you look at 1 Timothy, and in chapter 6, Paul also addresses the false prophets. And in verse 3, he says this If anyone advocates a different doctrine and doesn't agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, note the theme, he's conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, they think that they can get wealthy through the process of preaching godliness, but godliness actually is a means of great, great gain when accompanied by contentment. There's many other passages we would have gone to. We could have gone to Jesus' prophecies about false prophets. But I want to show you just a flavor of the Old and the New Testament. You see them happening in Acts. At the beginning of the church, you've got false prophets arising so fast, just as the church was starting up. In other words, what we're seeing in the world today isn't new. It existed in ancient Israel. It existed in the early church. It exists today. It will continue to exist until Jesus comes back. Therefore, this is a relevant chapter to us, for us to understand and for us to hopefully Evaluate and not in any way imitate. And we have to understand that the source of this kind of perversion of scripture is Satan himself. At the end of chapter 5 of First Peter, when we ended that letter, we talked about Satan being a liar and deceiver from the very first time he interacted with humans in Genesis 3. He lied. He twisted scripture. He then said the opposite of what God said. And then scripture, as you read it, unveils Satan as the great deceiver, as the great slanderer, all the way until you get to the very end of Revelation, and it says there are no liars in heaven. In other words, human history is characterized by lies and deception, and the source of all that originally is Satan. How deceptive is he? In 2 Corinthians, in chapter 11, we read something that really characterizes what I just mentioned, false teachers. Second Corinthians 11, verse 13. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, which means that they are sent by Christ, right? The word apostle just means the one who's sent. That's all that means. The one who's sent. Now there were 12 apostles as Jesus established them. What that means is they were sent directly by Jesus. There were 12 of them until one was shown to be false no wonder verse 14 even satan disguises himself as an angel of light therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds and that is the passage that makes it so clear that the source of all this false teaching is satan himself who disguises himself as an angel of light and jesus described him in John eight forty four as the one who has no truth in him at all. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie because that is from his own nature. He's a liar and the father of lies. So as we look at this portrait of ungodliness and the prediction we find in 2 Peter 2, we have to understand that it ultimately comes from Satan and it ultimately focuses on perversion Of the word of God. And they come in, verse 2, secretly. They will come secretly, or verse 1 rather, they will come secretly introducing destructive heresies. In other words, teachings that ultimately lead to final destruction. Whenever Peter uses this word, and he does so five times in his writings, it's always in reference to final judgment. The destruction in that verse is about final spiritual judgment that it comes at the end of the age. And they're the ones who deny the master who bought them. I'll explain that later in the message, exactly what that means and how do we reconcile that with being saved and elect and so on. But just the idea of denying the master, that's not the word Lord. We know the word kurios, right? Everybody knows, well, if you've been around church, you know the word kurios, right? Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the word here. That's the word here. The word is despot. That's the Greek word. And we know the word despot. In other words, it's somebody who is the supreme ruler. So Peter uses a unique word. He knows the word kurios. Trust me. He uses it everywhere in first and second Peter. But he chooses despot because he said they're the ones who deny the supreme ruler of everything, Jesus Christ. And they deny the one. Who died to save people from their sins. Instead of being faithful to Jesus, they are characterized, verse two, by sensuality. By sensuality. He focuses on sensuality again in verse seven, sensual conduct. In verse 10, he talks about indulging the flesh and its corrupt desires. In verse 12, he talks about them being like animals, Pursuing their lusts with no self-control. In verse 14, he talks about them having eyes full of adultery, never ceasing from sin, their hearts being trained in greed. In verse 18, he says they pursue and entice others to fleshly desires by sensuality. In verse 19, he says they are slaves of corruption. In verse 22, he talks about them as if they are dogs that return to their vomit or pigs that return back to their mire. In chapter 3, verse 3, he describes the same people as mockers who follow in their own lusts. So you can see how many times Peter describes them as those who are obsessed with lusts, with sensuality. That is what characterizes their lives, and what you begin to see oftentimes that people who begin to pervert scripture, who begin to teach unorthodox doctrine, there's no hell. For example, Rob Bell became famous by teaching that there's no hell, or those who begin to deny that homosexuality is a sin, like Josh Harris or Joel Osteen, who only preaches about being healthy and wealthy and secure in this life. Oftentimes, you find those sins characterize their life. And so they try to remove the element of final judgment from their teaching. Or they try to remove any condemnation in scripture of a specific sin. And so Peter says they are sensual. What our pastor wrote in this commentary on this passage, he says this, a teacher may claim to be God's spokesman, but if his life is characterized by corruption, lust, and immorality, it proves that he is a fraud. And this is what Peter says about them. Look at the end of verse two. Because of them, the way of truth, or the truth, is being blasphemed. Now contrast that statement against the christian's testimony go back to first peter chapter 2 verse 12 peter calls the believers to keep your behavior excellent among the gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify god in the day of visitation. They're not mocking the way of truth. They're glorifying God. You remember Matthew five sixteen let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. In 1 Peter chapter four, verse three, Peter says, the time has already passed. It is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you, the same word, they blaspheme you. So in other words, one person's life and conduct can cause others to malign the word of God and truth, whereas another person's life and conduct can cause the world to malign him or her for their faithful testimony. They blaspheme us because of our faithfulness to Christ. Is the world blaspheming the church, Christ, the gospel, because of your conduct? Are they mocking Christians because of the way you speak? Because of the the choices that you make, how to spend your time, how to entertain yourself? Is the world basically saying, well, what's the difference? I don't have to claim to be a Christian. I can be just like this person. What's the difference? Instead, in Titus 2, this should be a testimony. In Titus 2, Paul says in verse 5, at the end of addressing women in the church, he says, you live a certain way, sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, uh, submissive to your husband, loving your children, loving your husbands, and so on. Verse 5, so that the word of God is not dishonored. And then you go to verse 8. He speaks to men in the church and he says, you're supposed to be above reproach, sound in speech, so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And then in verse 11, he says now, in the context of work, generally speaking, you're supposed to be, verse 10, not pilfering, showing good faith in everything, adorning the doctrine of God, our savior in every respect the idea there is beautifying the doctrine of God, the gospel. Your life makes the gospel beautiful. That's the idea there. So the false teachers solicit blasphemy against the gospel because of the way they live. The true believer solicits blasphemy against himself or herself because you're so different from the world. And we know 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And so Peter introduces these false teachers as those who are characterized by sensuality and also by greed in verse 3. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. It's somebody who is covetous. Characterized by envy. In verse 14, it says their heart is strained in greed. We'll talk about the meaning of that phrase in a minute. Whereas true followers of Christ are supposed to be not greedy, not covetous, not envious. And so they are greedy and they exploit you. That's the word for traffic. They traffic your soul. They live to make money off your soul As they lie to you, verse three, with false words. What happens to the individuals who profess to speak for God, but do so in order to get rich off of the people that they're claiming to serve? If you go to Ezekiel chapter 34, there's a description of individuals, false shepherds of Israel, false teachers. And this is how ezekiel describes them chapter 34 in verse 2 god says to ezekiel son of man prophesy against the shepherds of israel prophesy and say to those shepherds thus says the lord of god woe shepherds of israel who have been feeding themselves should not the shepherds feed the flock you eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool and you slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The disease, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity, you have dominated them. And then if you look at verse eight, here's the consequence. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has been a prey, my flock has become food for all the beasts of the field, for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds hear the word of the Lord and judgment is imposed on them. So there were people in Israel who did the same thing that Peter warns about. In other words, there are people who instead of feeding God's people, traffic them, traffic their souls in order to get rich off of them. And Peter says back in verse three, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. The idea is that God is not blind to what they're doing and God's judgment is not dormant. It is not sleepy. It is alive. It is awake. It is waiting for the right moment to be poured out on the individuals who are living their life in this way in the church. One person said it this way, perdition waits for them with unsleeping eyes. But that's a reminder for both sinners and saints that there is judgment coming. And we profess to know Christ, but do we by our deeds deny him? That's exactly what they were doing. So Peter begins... saying is remember people will come false teachers false prophets and this is what they look like and it takes us to the second point and that is the portraits of the ungodly so this is the prediction of the ungodly in the first three verses now we get to the portraits now the portraits is not about their characteristics we'll get to that in our third point this is all about God proving that verse 3 is true He's prophesying future judgment, future destruction. But he says, let me remind you of history and that what I'm promising for the future has actually taken place in different shape and in different form in the past. And so he goes into the Old Testament and begins all the way back in Genesis chapter six. And this is what he says. God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So what we see in this judgment on the angels is that God doesn't care about your rank. The angels are the highest created beings. They're the loftiest, they're the most majestic of all creation. And God says, I don't care if the greatest creature sins, I'm not going to look the other way. I will judge no matter the rank. This verse takes us back to Genesis 6. And just as a refresher, this is what we find in Genesis 6. Came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land. And daughters were born to them that the sons of God, angels, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit will not strife with men forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days will be 120 years then nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of god again angels came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown so now we are transplanted into the beginning of human history into a period where the best reconstruction understanding of that passage along with second Peter 2 along with first Peter chapter 3 we talked about this last semester and along with Jude verses 5 through 7 where it seems that at the beginning of creation, not at the first but before today, how's that sometime long ago thousands of years ago um, the angels saw beautiful women. And they wanted to cohabitate with them. And they did, they took on bodies. We know from many places in scripture that angels can take on human bodies. They did, they cohabitated with them. They had a a mixed race and God judged them. And we can find this even outside the Bible. These kind of traditions exist in other books written around the biblical times. And so God says, even when that happened, I didn't look away because they were angels. I judged them. And what did he do? Well, back in 2 Peter, he says he committed them into hell, to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, what that means is that they are in a temporary place right now, awaiting final judgment reserved for judgment, suggests that they have not been finally and fully judged. Rather, they're somewhere in a pit, a pit of darkness, in a place called hell. It doesn't matter how important you are, God will judge all sin. And Peter picks up a word from Greek mythology. The word is Tartarus. Because Tartarus was a term that reflected a subterranean place that is lower than Hades, a place for punishment for the worst of the gods and the worst of sinners in Greek mythology. And so Peter takes a word that was known to people in his time and says, you know of this idea that there's a place where the worst of the worst are held for final judgment. That is where God sent these individuals. Now, from our theological understanding of God's creation, God's judgment, it's hell. Hell is temporary. The eternal lake of fire is permanent. So nobody is in the eternal lake of fire today. It's there, but it's empty. It's empty hell is being populated with people who die without christ and that is where the angels are being held and according to second peter it means that they are in the lowest part of this temporary holding place and so now they're being held for judgment and peter uses terminology where he says they have been handed over for destruction they've been committed In verse 5, the world, the ancient world wasn't spared. Do you know where else those two terms are used? Handed over, did not spare. Romans 8. In Romans 8, I think for many of us, that's one of our favorite chapters in the Bible. And verse 32 says this. He, God, did not spare his own son, but handed him over, delivered him for us all. How will going to freely give us all things? Here's what I think is the parallel. He looks at these diabolical angels and he says, God delivered them, did not spare them to judgment. And then he says, I'm going to use the same vocabulary to describe what I did to my son, in order for people to understand the gravity of sin, that God delivered him over, did not spare him, so that the payment for sin can be accomplished. That's what Romans 8 is all about. God did not spare, the greatest thing he had was his son, the relationship with his son. God did not spare that for us. He'll surely give you anything else you want and ask for within his will. I hope that causes you to pause and appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus because the devil and his angels were supposed to experience that kind of judgment and God pours it out on his son on the cross. That's the gospel message is that we believe that God did judge fully, finally, completely his son. For every single person who believes in him and confesses his or her sins and repents and lives a life that is consistent with the profession and you demonstrate that you are his, you belong to him and your life isn't like the false teachers that we are reading about in this chapter. Rather, you are following Christ and you love Christ and your conduct brings honor to Christ. The first example indicates that God doesn't care how important you are. He will judge. The second example in verse five, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, the second illustration indicates that God has, a, uh, has no limits to his judgment. Now, this is about extent. The story goes back to Genesis six, where the flood begins from chapter six all the way through chapter nine of Genesis. That's the story of the flood. And God flooded the entire world. And in that event, that cataclysmic event, he found only eight people who were righteous. One of them being Noah and his family. And so now God, in his judgment, doesn't just judge everybody. He judges the unrighteous. Do you see that? If there is a righteous person, God will not judge him. That's the point. But the extent of judgment is going to be broad. We're looking at the breadth of God's judgment. Why? Well, because in Genesis six, verse five, it says, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man. It was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that grieved God's heart in verse six. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is comprehensive. An obsession with sin. Hearts that are trained in sin. And that's why God judged the world. And yet, he saved or rescued Noah. You see, God sees and protects those who are his. Think about Genesis 18, which takes us to our third example. If you condemn the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6, to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example of those who would live ungodly lives. If he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous men, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. So that's all about the third example of judgment and that is Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah teaches us that there is a depth to God's judgment. Doesn't matter how important you are. The rank doesn't matter. The breadth of it is in the second illustration and now the depth of it is in the third illustration. And the word that Peter uses to describe this is catastrophe. It's a catastrophe to what happened to the ancient world. It's a catastrophe rather, verse six, that happened to Sodom of Gam- and Gomorrah destruction. That's the idea there. Now, what he's talking about is what happens in Genesis chapter 19, verse 24. Chapter 18 and 19 describes the event, but the actual judgment is in verse 24. And this is what we read. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Side comment. It says Yahweh rained fire from Yahweh. So unless there is a split personality in God, we're talking about there are multiple persons in God, hence the Trinity discussion. So Yahweh rains fire from Yahweh. So God looks at Sodom and Gomorrah. And in chapter 18 into 19, there's a debate between God and Abraham. And God tells Abraham, I'm going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, hold up. What if there are some righteous people in that city? Are you going to preserve them? God says, yes. And so they start and they go down, 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 down until you get towards the end of chapter 18. And ultimately he asks in verse 31, 20 people. What about 10 people in chapter, in verse 32? What if there's only 10 righteous people and God says, I will not destroy it. And then Abraham walked away and God went to ultimately judge Sodom and Gomorrah. But what we find is that even in Sodom and Gomorrah, God protected the righteous. His judgment is not indiscriminate. He will protect the righteous. Sodom and Gomorrah appears in Genesis 13. It's when the servants of Lot and the servants of Abraham are fighting. They can't get along. And so Abraham and Lot, Lot was Abraham's nephew. They connect and they say, look, this area is a little bit too small for our success. Abraham says, you go find a place anywhere. You want to stay here? I'll leave. But if you want to go somewhere else, go, let's just remain in peace. And so they part ways. And Lot ends up moving to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know why? Because of what verse 10 says, the valley of the Jordan was well watered everywhere, like the garden of Yahweh, the garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah was a beautiful green valley where you could be a successful farmer. That's why he went there. And what happens with Sodom and Gomorrah after the Lord rains fire and brimstone, it becomes a desolate place characterized by sulfur. God doesn't care how beautiful your location is or your house or your your wardrobe or whatever. God doesn't care about that. If there is sin, he will destroy it. And God created that area. We have to understand this indiscriminate nature of God that he will judge no matter how valuable, how beautiful, how important you are and the judgment will be severe. Why did God judge this place? Because in Genesis 1911, angels show up to rescue Lot from this upcoming judgment. Lot is stubborn. He doesn't want to leave. Remember, he lives in a place like the Garden of Eden. I think most of us would think twice, really? I mean, I don't want to go to Egypt. Come on, it's a bunch of desert. I like my little valley. They drag him out. But God wanted to judge Sodom and Gomorrah because the men in that city were homosexual and they saw the beautiful angels. And it says in chapter 19, they wanted to have sexual relationships with them. And in order to protect Lot from these individuals and the angels. The angels struck the men with blindness. And listen to this verse. The obsession with lust, the lack of self-control. The angels struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the door. They were so obsessed with committing homosexual sin, that they became tired trying to find the doorknob to open the door and get inside as they are struck with blindness. That's the sensuality uh, Peter is describing and is using that illustration to say God judges sin. But in that context, he sees an individual who is righteous. Three times it says that Lot was righteous. In verse seven, it says he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled man. Verse eight says his righteous soul was tormented day after day. And then he says he heard, verse eight, what he saw and what he heard. In other words, Lot did not isolate himself from his society. He lived in the society. He saw the sin, he heard the sin. It was like, most likely he evangelized these individuals preaching repentance and righteousness. And three times God says he was a righteous individual. And his conduct was spiritual, it was right. Now we know that Lot wasn't perfect, right? We know what happens after he's rescued, his wife turns into a pillar of salt, and then he commits incest with his own daughters so righteousness is not about perfection it is the pursuit of perfection but righteousness is finding your satisfaction and God Is being declared righteous because you believe in Jesus Christ and his righteousness is imposed on you it's given to you it's applied to you and now you stand righteous in Jesus Christ and then your life of obedience demonstrates that you are wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus It doesn't mean that you are perfect today. Lot wasn't perfect and yet three times he's described as righteous. I hope that you see here that Lot was tormented. He was oppressed by the sin around him. He was vexed. If what's happening in our country today the immorality all around us. From the presidential administration to the local government here. If that doesn't bother you, that such immorality, such sin is being pushed on people through law, through consequences. There's a woman, a part of Grace Church, part of the Russian Bible study here, who was just... um basically fired from her job for refusing to read LGBTQ books to young children. They brought him in. She was supposed to read four or five of those books to children as she was a nanny in this huge corporation. And they said, same day, you're done. Unpaid administrative leave. We've been in touch with our elders, pastors, attorneys, trying to help her figure out what's next. But this just happened. Less than two weeks ago. Because she refused to read LGBTQ books to children. Five-year-olds. That's the society we live in. And if that doesn't bother you, I would say there's a problem with your understanding of righteousness and the standard of righteousness and what God expects of holiness versus what is sensual and inappropriate. Lot was vexed. He was tormented. I hope you are as well. And I hope that pushes you to pray and beg God to send Jesus Christ and establish the Millennial Kingdom. That's what I'm praying for. Get it done. I'm tired of waiting. Hope you are as well. But until then, we faithfully follow, we faithfully obey, we faithfully proclaim the gospel. But we should be uncomfortable with the immorality that is increasing in our society that is the example that peter chooses those three examples from the ancient world and then it takes us to the profile of the ungodly people and here's a summary statement on your screen the profile of the ungodly in verses 10 through 19 is as follows lust you can see all the verses next thing there we are you can see all the verses that talk about their lust greed twice Lies, twice, ungodliness, twice, lawlessness, unrighteousness, anarchy, arrogance, blasphemy. They tempt others. They are damned. They are hypocrites. They are enslaved to sin. That is the summary statement of the individual who is ungodly. And beginning with arrogance in verses 10 and 11, they despise authority. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties where angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. What he's saying is this, that humans who are obsessed with sin, who are ungodly, are so arrogant, so brash, that they're even worse than the angels because the angels don't enter an area where they're forbidden. There's an illustration of the archangel Michael arguing with Satan over the body of Moses. And he says to him, God forbid you, or God ultimately will stop you. Michael knew where his limits are, even with Lucifer. Humans who are sinners, verse 11, they think they're greater in might and power, and they revile. That's arrogance. That's pride. In Jude 8 and 9, a parallel passage to this section talks about them reviling angelic beings. They're brutish, verses 12 through 13. They're like unreasoning unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge. In their destruction of those creatures, they also will be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime they are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you so now they are like animals they have no self-control they just exist to sin and they're obsessed with debauchery reveling in the daytime listen to this quote characterizing the ancient roman society This is from our pastor's commentary. According to historians, pagan Roman society tolerated dissipation and revelry as long as it was done discreetly in the dark at night. But they frowned on it and disapproved of debauchery during the daytime when it was seen by everyone. Because of its public nature, such behavior was considered inappropriate even by Roman pagans. These professing Christians revel in pleasure in the daytime that is how obsessed with the pursuit of lust they are they just put it on display for everybody in the middle of the day and in romans 13 paul speaks of something similar verse 12 he says "He says the night is almost gone the day is near therefore let us lay aside the deed of darkness in other words paul said those are deeds of darkness you don't commit those sins in the public in the middle of the day let, them, let, let us let set them aside and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. Even there, there's this principle. You do proper things in the middle of the day. Not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, not sensuality, not strife, not jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So that, that was the normal Greco-Roman understanding of what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. They are so obsessed with sin they do things that even the pagans claim to be inappropriate. And so Peter just kind of exclaims this in disgust. Verse thirteen: They are blemishes; they are stains. That is in contrast of what the church is. Remember Ephesians five twenty-seven: When Christ will present the church without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle, completely blameless. And In 1 Peter, he talks about Jesus being spotless, having no blemishes. So they're the exact opposite of the, who Christ is and what a true believer is and what we're moving towards as the church of Christ. And so they revel with you, verse 13, in their lies as they carouse with you. In other words, they're part of the church. They're part of communion. They're part of the social aspect of the church. They associate themselves with Christians. And sometimes they become teachers, as we saw earlier. In other words, we're not talking about people who are the worst of the worst, worst outside the church. No, this is within the church. That's where it becomes applicational for us and relevant. I hope that we can genuinely evaluate ourselves. Do any of these things describe me? Am I obsessed with sin secretly? Is this what I'm doing? Is my heart trained in greed? Is that true of me in any capacity? Am I pursuing things that are forbidden? Am I expressing arrogance in any way? Do I not care about the consequences for my sin? If you keep doing it, you're ultimately saying, I don't care. That's the application that we should take from this passage. And so in verses 14 through 16, he says, Now they're also greedy. Their eyes are full of adultery. They never cease from sin. They entice unstable souls. Their heart is trained in greed. Greed like Balaam, verse 15, the son of Beor, who loved wages of righteousness. And he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. You remember this story from Numbers 22 to 25? Where Balak, an enemy of Israel, hired Balaam, wanted to hire him to curse Israel. And so he kept increasing the wages. Okay, if you curse him, I'll give you this much. like, "Mm, not, not enough. Okay, I'll increase the payment. I'll increase the payment. They just kept increasing more and more. And finally, Balaam says, all right, let's go donkey. And so he gets on the donkey and starts moving towards the place where he wanted to curse Israel. And ultimately, God intervenes and stops him such that the donkey speaks and says, what are you doing? He starts beating it. Why are you beating me? And they have a conversation, which is also weird. But they talk about, have I ever been unfaithful to you? Have I ever taken your place? You never wanted to go? I've always been faithful. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You have. He just cuts his back. Weird, right? But the example is that he was so obsessed with money that he was willing to break God's commandment to get money. That's greed. How far will you go because of your lust for money? What does God have to do in your life to remind you greed is a sin? Does he have to make a donkey talk? I mean, that's the idea. God will go into extreme measures to remind you this is sin and the consequences of that sin. And so these individuals have fully jumped into sin. They have trained in greed. The idea there is they've become experts. They've gone to school this term is used all over the new testament to talk about discipline learning something becoming excellent at something mastering a subject it's the idea of discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness they are disciplining themselves in greed they're learning new ways on how to express a desire for greed and pursue greed that's their profile And so in verses 17 and 19, he says, These are springs without water, mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Again, a statement of judgment. They speak arrogant words. They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. Those who barely escape from the one who live in error, that's the idea that they're going after new converts, new believers people who aren't fully aware of the Bible and they don't know exactly what God wants and doesn't want. They're still learning. And so they focus on those people and they try to seduce them into their inappropriate way of life. And so he says, they are mists. They are clouds without water. In other words, they're hypocrites. They're fake. You see a cloud and you think it's going to rain, but there's no rain. That's a fake cloud. You think that they're going to produce something and they don't. These are the individuals who promise, verse 19, freedom. Why they themselves are slaves. That's the idea. There is corruption. There's lies. There's deception. There's arrogance. Jesus said this about the Pharisees, Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell as yourself. That's the idea. They pursue individuals who are not fully versed in scripture. They make him twice the son of hell. Perhaps you're not running headlong into debauchery. And you're not super arrogant. And you're not obsessed with greed but is there any evidence of any of that stuff in your life? And the believer eradicates every little kernel, every little seed, every manifestation of sin. Because every seed grows and it will produce fruit and it will manifest itself if we don't aggressively kill it. That's the profile of the ungodly. And finally, there's punishment on the ungodly. It's spread throughout the chapter. We've looked at it already a few times. Verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. The Lord keeps the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Both of those statements are in the present tense which means God is active constantly in protecting the righteous and in keeping the unrighteous for judgment. That's his message to us. In verse 17, black darkness has been reserved for the ungodly. In verse 22, for after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, They again entangle in them and are overcome and the last state has become worse for them than the first. The idea goes back to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew 12, beginning in verse 43. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came out. When it comes, it finds it's unoccupied, swept, put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Sounds familiar? That is the way it will be for this generation. In other words, you have to fill your life with righteousness, with the pursuit of holiness with the knowledge of scripture develop invest in grow in your knowledge of jesus christ those are his final words in this book verse 18 grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord jesus christ because that is what will keep you from ungodliness so don't say i'm a christian and then just kind of you know flounder because the last state will be worse than the first if you just let people influence you under their sinful desires. How can this be? Back at the beginning of this chapter, he says, they deny the master who bought them. Sounds like they are believers, right? you have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is the statement about true believers elsewhere in scripture. So he says they've been bought by the master, Jesus Christ. And they profess to know scripture and they're teaching it. Now they're perverting it, but they know the Bible and they revel with you. In other words, they're part of the church. They go to church. They take communion. They participate in the sacraments. They are living their life With the people of God. But the answer comes at the very, very end. Verse 22 It happened to them according to the true proverb a dog returns to its vomit. A pig, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Their nature wasn't changed. They're still as filthy, still as dirty as they were before that's why he ends there because he says ultimately it is about the great transformation of your nature and if you have been transformed if you have been changed as pastor john has been preaching for weeks and weeks and weeks now in ephesians if you have experienced that change in your life then your life will show it But if you keep returning to your vomit, you keep returning to the filth of your previous life, and your life hasn't changed, it hasn't been different, and you're still characterized by the sins we looked at, then perhaps your nature hasn't been changed. Perhaps the great transformation hasn't taken place. Perhaps you are a cloud without water. Perhaps you are a hypocrite. And just as they were in the church and knew the Bible... You are in the church and you know your Bible. But the question is, has your nature been changed? And if it has, by their fruits, you will know them. Because as we wrap it up, Jesus' first major sermon after he started his ministry, he ends it with these words in Matthew 7 and verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. In other words, we were active in ministry. We performed the supernatural and we prophesied and we healed. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And the last words of that chapter is about the man who builds his foundation on sand or on the rock, the rock being Jesus Christ. That's where it comes down to. By their fruits, you will know them. Is your life a life that demonstrates that your life is built on Christ? That's where you are. That's where you stand. That's where your righteousness is. And you've confessed your sins and you've asked him to forgive you. And you're pursuing Christ with your entire being and you can't get enough of him. And you are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That characterizes your life. And you love talking to him and you love talking about him. And you love praying. And you love other Christians because they help you do that. And you're doing whatever you can to eradicate every sin in your life. And you're not perfect. None of us are. If you ever thought this thought, John MacArthur is not perfect. None of us are. And he knows it. Ask him on Sunday. Because we're still pursuing. But there is evidence. And people can tell. And you can tell. And that fruit isn't just for the others. It's for you to know that I am His. And He's producing that fruit in you. There's a prayer from the Valley of Vision that asks Him to make this even more real in each of us. Oh God of highest heaven, occupy the throne of my heart. Take full possession and reign supreme. Lay low every rebel lust. Let no vile passion resist thy holy war. Manifest thy mighty power and make me thine forever. Thou art worthy to be praised with my every breath, loved with my every faculty of soul, served with my every act of life. Thou hast loved me, espoused me, received me, purchased, washed, favored, clothed, adorned me. When I was worthless, vile soiled polluted i was dead in iniquities having no eyes to see thee no ears to hear thee no taste to relish thy joys no intelligence to know thee but thy spirit has quickened me that's the great transformation has brought me into a new world as a new creature has given me a spiritual perception has opened to me thy word as light guide solace, and joy Thy presence is to me a treasure of unending peace. No provocation can part me from thy sympathy, for thou hast drawn me with the cords of love and dost forgive me daily, hourly. Oh, help me then to walk worthy of thy love, of my hopes and my vocation. Keep me, for I cannot keep myself. Protect me that no evil befall me. Let me lay aside every sin admired of many. Help me to walk by thy side, lean on thy arm, hold converse with thee, that henceforth I may be salt of the earth and a blessing to all. That's the right response to a chapter that isn't just about them. It also speaks to us. Before we sing in response, let me ask us to bow our heads and confess if you have a sin to confess as you pursue Christ's likeness. Lord God, this ancient Puritan prayer accurately summarizes our desire. Summarizes our pursuit and our wish. That we would be pure. That every inkling of sin would be gone. That we would love to converse with you. We all have sins to confess. And we will be like you when we see you face to face. Until then, forgive us. Forgive us for... Manifesting some of these sins that we just read about. Forgive us for being easily tempted away from you by the things of this world. Forgive us for not being aroused with holy anger at the immorality around us. Forgive us for not proclaiming your gospel with joy and passion, and hope. Forgive us for not desiring your word. Forgive us for even sometimes perverting it. Forgive us for forgetting that it is perfect. It's inspired. It has no errors. And forgive us for mistreating it since all those things are true of it. Forgive us for not walking in the Spirit and thereby killing all lusts of the flesh. Forgive us for not joyously coming to church to celebrate your forgiveness with other believers. Lord God, we do want to be like Christ. And I pray for those who may just walked here for the first time, not knowing what to expect, and they may not be yours. I ask that the Holy Spirit would accomplish the great transformation in their lives. And that they would become yours. And that they would see the empty promises of sin. It will never satisfy. And that only you satisfy. And we will find joy and contentment in you, in our relationship with you. And in response to all these truths, we sing, amen.